Here we go. What is going on, people? Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again for another episode and for your support so far. I really do appreciate it. So today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest today, and that is Stuart Goodwin. Hello, Stuart. How are you today? Very well, thanks, Oliver. Would you mind calling me Stu for the purposes Stu. of this? Of yeah. Course. Course, I sort of drop yeah. drop the Stuart. It seems a bit formal, but I'm very well, and it's great to be here. And thank you for asking me. Oh no, no problem at all. Thank you for coming along. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so thank you, Stu. I'll get that in now. For sounds sounds very formal, doesn't it? Uh, but yeah, but fantastic, Stu. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you being here. So let's introduce you and what you have been through up to this point. So Stu graduated from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in 1998 and has a incredibly impressive CV to his name, both across stage, film, and TV. Uh, his film credits include Rita, Sue, and Bob 2, Cash Crank, Eight for Silver. He's appeared on television in a little known thing called Coronation Street, uh, Dazel and Pasco, a sweet, Pasco, a sweet Lazarus, Peak Practice, Every Woman Knows a Secret, The Cops, Wing and Prayer, Always and Everyone, The Bill, Wire in the Blood, State of Play, State of Mind, Prime Suspect, Doctors, and Strictly Confidential. And you might also have heard his voice being lent to the Hall Methanol Suites, <laughs> Angry's advert, <laughs> advert, which I'm sure appeared on your televisions at some point over the last few years. Uh, and of course, he's worked on stage as well. And his stage credits include The Gentleman, A Russian in the Woods, Julius Caesar, Lieutenant of Inishmore, The Country Wife, Three Musketeers, Two Clouds Over Eden, Pier Gint, Hinge of the World, A Conversation, Midnight's Pumpkin, The Wild Bride, Tristan and Yassault, Sleeping Beauty, Serrano in Serrano de Bergerac, La Strada, and one very, very special role in something we're going to talk about a lot today, which is the monster in A Monster Calls, originally from the Bristol Old Vic, was transferred to the Old Vic in London in July 2018, and that's that show, I won't, I won't kick off now. We're going to talk about this a lot today, but my goodness, that's an impressive CV you've got there. You must be really proud. Uh, thanks, Oliver. I mean, it spans over a, a good deal of time. I left, I went to drama school late. I went when I was uh, 29. Wow. I left uh, just into, into my early 30s. And I, I did sort of hit the ground running. That was my aim because I was slightly older. I thought I'd just got to get there, get myself an agent and and get on with it. And it worked for, for the first sort of eight to 10 years, having come out of drama school. I was doing theater, telly, theater, telly, a commercial, a little bit of film here and there. And it was fantastic. I got a, a, a great momentum up. But there was a, a, a moment that I sort of reassessed things and I, I took a step back. I, I took a step away from uh, performing mm. just to do to do other things. Uh, I don't know whether you want me to um, widen on that, talk oh, about yeah. that or... Yeah, well, what, what have you been up to since you've been away from acting? Well, I, it came about uh, because when I, whenever I didn't have a job, I, I was uh, depressed and miserable. And then when I got a job, I ended up being depressed and miserable. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know why. I think drama school possibly spoiled me because I had the best time in my life. Um, 
the best three years, really. It was, it was fantastic. It was so focused. The energy's brilliant, amazing people. And I suppose I was spoiled. Uh, and when you come out, the reality is, well, yeah, Coronation Street. Six or eight lines on Coronation Street. Then you get invited back a couple of years later. <laughs> pick up um, an episode on the bill of, I mean, I usually got to play uh, villains or, or bent coppers. Um, and, and so the pattern goes on. I've played a couple of murderers here and there. Hey. <laughs> uh, you, you sort of start to see the cycle come back around because you are what you are. And so television casts uh, very specific to your looks and the, and the sound of you. And I suppose that that's what made me think I'm not I'm not really doing what I want to do. Although I was in a, a BAFTA winning uh, TV series, The Cops, mm. which was a real groundbreaker. It was like sort of shaky camera documentary. It was one of those early ones, uh, BAFTA winning. And another show I did uh, in which I played a murderer, also BAFTA winning, which went on to make a film, uh, State of Play. So I was in the original State of Play, which then uh, I think Russell Crowe uh, did the film. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I got to the stage where I was not happy. And friends were saying to me, if you don't like this, get out of the way, because there's plenty standing behind that, that would love the chance to do this. And, and I figured, you know what, I, I think they're right. And I did. I backed off. I left my agent and I started uh, to do carpentry. Uh, in my local area, building stuff for people, fencing, decking, pergolas, uh, cupboards, wardrobes, you know, you name it. Yeah. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> uh, for a couple of years, I set my own time, set my own pace. I could go home for lunch. Uh, just had um, just had my firstborn, my daughter. Oh, okay. So I could be around her a lot. I wasn't going away on tour. And it, it really suited me. And I did do the, the odd little bit of television, uh, but not, I wasn't really going for stuff. I wasn't really going for auditions. Uh, one or two projects I got invited to do, which is always uh, fantastic. Um, mm. But I did, I took two or three years away from it and my family and I uh, traveled around Europe uh, for a year. Uh, which is a complete eye-opening experience. We stayed in eco-villages and eco-farms, and we sort of volunteered our way around Europe, uh, which was a, a fantastic experience. Fantastic. And, and then we sort of landed where we, where we are now in 2012. So between 20, uh, 2008 and 2010, 11, I wasn't really doing anything uh, other than the carpentry and, and traveling. And then a casting director friend got in touch and said, I've got a job here. It's got your name all over it. And I said to her, well, Sam, I'm not really doing that anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm okay. And she said, well, I'll just, I'll just send it across. Uh, have a look at it and see what you think. <laughs> and it was um, an email from Nehi. Uh, theatre company who sadly just this year folded. Uh, it was a great tragedy. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that the people of Nehi will come back together, those, the original founder, Mike Shepard, and the writer, Carl Gross, and Anna Murphy, who was a founder yeah. member. 
I'm sure they'll come back for different oh, they projects. Will. They will, for sure, definitely. They will be back, yeah. I, I hope so. But the, the job really did have uh, my name all over it. It was to play the father in Cinderella and the manservant to the prince. And it said, can you throw a party? Can you get 500 people dancing? So the idea was that the ball in Cinderella would be the audience coming down onto the stage. Wow. And dancing. And I love a party. I love a party. Wow. I love to throw a party. I like a dance. And the other show running alongside it was The Wild Bride, which is the retelling of, a, of an old uh, fable, an old fa a fairy tale. Uh, quite a dark story. Yeah. And the director said to me, I've got three of the most feisty women you could ever hope to meet. Uh, a French Canadian with the voice of an angel. She's an acrobat. Uh, she also plays uh, the accordion. We've got Patricia Kujawska, who's a, a Polish virtuoso violinist and uh, a contemporary dancer. And Eva Magia, uh, who is, I think, Hungarian. Uh, she's a dancer and theater maker, director in her own right. And the basic premise was, are you man enough to, to stand up to these women <laughs> and make, make this story? Oh. And I, I like a challenge and I, and I took it and it changed my life, Oliver. It did. How, how exactly did it change your life? Please be as accurate as possible. <laughs> as accurate as possible. Well, running up to the time that I took a step back from theatre, I found myself in the rehearsal room or on set or, or wherever I was saying no to people, saying no to the director or not, not so abruptly, but I would, I would slide around it. But basically I was, I was resisting. Mm. I was resisting directing, uh, direction. Uh, oh, I'm not sure I would do that. I'm not sure that would work. I, I don't feel I could, well, maybe we could try something else. And so I was resisting and I could feel uh, that resistance uh, coming back at me from the director, see them getting frustrated. Uh, why don't you just do the damn thing I'm asking you to? And I became awkward, Oliver, I became awkward and a little bit um, mouthy as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Perhaps I didn't think the parts uh, were good enough for me. Mm -hmm. um, again, a, a symptom of coming out of drama school, having played a massive range of parts over the three years. Mm. And like I say, spo spoiled for choice, Shakespeare, Chekhov, Brecht, you know, that whole gamut of, of, of stuff that's there, so rich. Yeah. And then you end up being some villain <laughs> being chased by a copper. Uh, um, <laughs> no. uh, going back to the, the, the thing, what Nihai did, and it was a sort of family collaboration tucked away in, in these beautiful barns on the cliffs in Cornwall. Mm. And we ate together, lit a fire in the evening, told stories, sang songs. Amazing. They, they said to me, if you're going to get through this, you have to learn to say yes. When we ask you a question, say yes immediately and then find out what's next. Yes will take you into the next room. No will keep you there. Yeah. And nobody wants to see somebody static. That's not a story. 
So say yes. And it sounds very simple, but it was, it was massively life-changing. And I could sort of see what was in that room, uh, you know, with these multi-instrumentalists, these dancers, these singers, uh, whipping up uh, fairy tales, dark stuff, and then it, it would turn uh, to absolute farce within seconds. And what Emma Rice, who was uh, artistic director then, with me, I was able to do was just to play people. She found out how to turn people on mm. uh, to their best and just kept throwing little ingredients in uh, to lead us down, down the path of telling this particular story. So yeah. it absolutely opened my eyes to the possibility uh, that if you just say yes, you get into the next room. But also, if you trust yourself, your skills, one's skills, can be peppered all over a show. Uh, rather than having to fit in some prescribed little box that a director has, has made for you. Yeah. So there was, a, there was a massive freedom with Nehi. Yeah. And, and, and life changing. I worked with them for a good number of years yeah. after that on, on two or three shows. And they're just brilliant. I traveled the world, America a couple of times, a couple of tours, big tours, New Zealand, UK, Ireland. Loved it. Wow, I mean that sounds. I mean, that that's a really good message, actually. I think for any sort of aspiring actors or actors at the moment who are, who are out there working or maybe not working, is the fact that if you just say yes, and you know, even if it is just a little, just to a little thing, you know, it's always like you said. I'm just echoing everything you're going to say now. Is it always leads you to the next door, in a way? Um, I'm often curious about the the balance in a rehearsal. You know, you're talking about you know if you do have an opinion that you want to share with a director you know, I'm, I'm sure that they want to hear it as well. So, but obviously, but you don't want to take over the room because I've worked with a few people who just constantly argue with the director and then it becomes very, very toxic very quickly. And you have to just, just keep out of it or just try and make the situation calmer again. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, it, what, what, what would you say was like a healthy balance between about how much can you ask, the, or how much can you give back to the director without, being a bit of a prick about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, having been in the situation where I have been a bit of a prick <laughs> and been one of those people that, that put the brakes on a rehearsal and everything just hung in the air, really? and it, it, it did turn toxic. Um, and I really battled. And, and w once you get into that situation, you're sort of digging, digging your own hole, mm. in a sense especially if you're at odds with the director, because they will come often with a, a pre-imagined show. I've worked with, with a couple of directors who it wouldn't have mattered whether it was me or a different actor, we would have been doing the same thing. So I, when I feel like I'm, I'm being told from a book, oh yes, that's where he moves next and that's where she should go, that's, that's when it becomes uninspiring, it becomes uh, dull. But to, to, to answer your question, what, how do you get the right balance? I suppose you've got to pick your battles. Yeah. Um, I tend now to remain fairly quiet uh, from the top. Do, do my prep work, do my reading, do whatever research I feel is relevant or not get in the room 
and just give myself to it rather than set myself up a, a standpoint. Mm. Standpoints are really tricky because somebody's got to give. You've got to shift eventually, else the story won't tell. Yeah. So I try not to make a stand on anything. And quite often it'll be after the rehearsal that maybe we get a chance, five minutes or, or so on, or I'll, I'll give a text if that's appropriate or a, you know, a short email. Rather than hold up the process, unless I think it's vitally important. And that's where, you know, picking your battles, oh my goodness, this fundamentally goes against what I've thought or what I imagined. And then to say it, with as little passion as possible, <laughs> um, I think. And, uh, you know, in as light a way as possible. Yeah. And leave all possibilities open. The minute you start closing down and saying, I only want to do this, or I, I can only see this way, you're yeah. in trouble. Yeah. And really, as actors, our imagination needs to remain wide open. Yeah. So anybody can throw anything in at any point. Uh, so yeah, choose your battles. Keep quiet at the beginning, you know, <laughs> uh, and be light about it. Be light and movable. And again, it comes back to, yes, if the director wants to see something, let them see it. Mm. Show them and show them in your best way. Uh, you know, yeah. give it the best effort. Because who knows, he, she might be right and you might be wrong and you might find something out. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm thankfully I've not been in a in a rehearsal room where there's a lot of sitting around a table, mm. and uh, uh, and there's lots of of that, like you say, somebody holding court, holding up the whole process, who who perhaps loves the sound of their own voice. Emma Rice wouldn't have any of it. She'd just cut you down straight away. Oh, say, this is it. That's Get true. on with it. Yeah. And change the atmosphere. She changed the atmosphere in the room. Let's do a dance. Let's sing a song. Yeah. Let's go and run on the cliffs. Let's go and do some yoga outside. And yeah. just change the atmosphere. And often when you come back into the room and there's been a sticky bit and you couldn't work it out, things will have moved significantly. Mm. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to, in my final year of university, I was lucky enough to actually go on a, well, we had to go on a, a professional placement. I, re I read drama at Sussex University. And um, in the final year, we had to do a placement and there was a few things in like little regional theatres going, but uh, there was a spot at the National Theatre to actually work alongside uh, Rufus Norris, which I was lucky oh. enough to get on, which was just fantastic. the best three weeks of my life, honestly. Uh, but it was, it was so interesting because we had to do a lot of um, script work upstairs, but we managed to oversee quite a lot of rehearsals. And Rufus is one of those people who he's a director who let his actors sort of take control of the room mm -hmm. in, in a way. Obviously, obviously he had a say in the matter, of course, you know, he had his designs, he had his, he was working with um, Caroline Duffy, who was the poet laureate at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was lovely, lovely to work with. Although <laughs> I remember walking in on the first day thinking, that's the poet laureate. That that's that's <laughs> the poet you'd be doffing your cap or, yeah. or something. Yeah, I don't know what to do, yeah. And, uh, it was funny because I went up to her because we studied some of her poems for GCSE and I said to her oh I really enjoyed uh, your poems a quick draw you know I was, I was really lovely and she went oh sorry about that and I was like I was like what are you sorry for and it's but it was just so oh god she was lovely so yeah 
yeah that was great fun but yeah but rufus would have his actors in the room and you know he would he would intervene sometimes he'd say okay this, that's going a bit off track there let's bring it back here but what was lovely working with him and the guys in the cast and there's been a couple who have done a couple of episodes with me laura and christian uh that they, they seem to have a very they, they would just throw stuff in you know there was no nothing holds barred you know there was nothing that was too dirty there was nothing that was too wrong they just threw they just didn't care they just i think that reflects on their experience but they just they just threw everything into the room and you know if it didn't work it got chucked out and if it did if it if it had some legs it would it would stay but you know i mean in terms of like you know with i don't know if, if emma's like this as well was did emma sort of let the room go for a bit or did she would she like sort of like hands off for five minutes and then hands back on for 10, if that makes sense. What was she like? Um, I, th I think it was a, a sort of delicate process. Uh, she's part uh, puppet master mm. and knows how to manipulate the room. She knows what elements she wants to bring in at what time. I need a bit of music under this scene. Mm. Or let's cut the words and do this as a dance, let's say. Mm. You know, so she's constantly throwing stuff in and then sends us away, go and sort that out, come back, tell this next bit of the story. Mm. We'd get a section of the story, uh, no script. We'd often, you know, just be taking lines from either, you know, the book or, the, or, or whatever from an old fairy tale. What's the, what's the element of the story? Go away, sort it out, come back. And I mean, one of her... One of her favourites was strong, but wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, she, she loved a strong approach. Yeah. And uh, didn't mind that it was wrong and didn't mind pointing it out. And so there'd be laughter about it and it would sort of lighten mm. uh, the mood. So there was nothing too serious. So in answer to your question, I suppose she was a light touch. Yeah. Uh, where she needed to be. But my goodness, you knew you were in good hands with her. Yeah. So she would let it roll, but only to the point where she thought, well, this isn't telling the story. And that was the important thing. Yeah. Come back. Come, come back. back to the story. Yeah, make sure you're telling the story which people are going to come and see. Yeah, I saw um, a clip of Marianne Elliott, who I think is just oh. a, god, a goddess, sorry, amongst directors. Uh, there's a clip of her in the rehearsal room at the National a few years ago with uh, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime team, the original cast. And they show you a little bit at the beginning where, where she sort of stops the room and she says, OK, guys, there is negativity in here today. There is a negative vibe. We're not going to do anything now until we've had a moment to decompress. And then when I think we're ready, then we'll get back to work. That sort of thing. I think that that is... You, you can't work if you're angry. You can't work if you're stressed or anything like that. You know, if you're, if you're coming into a devising rehearsal room and you have to create something from scratch, you know, you can't do it with that negative. Well, you can't do anything with negative mindset, but especially with, with, this, with this sort of thing, you need to be positive. I thought that was a nice touch as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that brings me on to probably the first part of our Monster Calls discussion today is actually working with... Sally Cookson, who is just, who is really establishing herself as just an amazing, amazing director. And she's really, you know, putting her mark on the wall at this point. Um, so what was her, how did she conduct the rehearsal room? Was it similar to Emma or was, did she have, does she have her own way of working? Uh, it's, it's not dissimilar in that she would 
throw the story open. Well, I suppose the, the, the first element of it is that we contact each other. We play games, we do warm-ups. Music is a big part of her uh, rehearsal room, always. She works with a, a, a fabulous um, musician, uh, Benji Bauer, and he's her composer in the room. So he's got all his kit set up. He'll have some basic themes that they've discussed and he's gone away. So he'll have some, some ideas, bits of songs, snatched lyrics here and there. So he'll have his little bit. She'll also often work with a, a movement uh, director uh, who'll also have an, perhaps an idea of the sort of style or the feel, because Sally often will do a, a two week or a week R&D, which again, working with uh, Nehi, I've never heard of R&D. <laughs> What, I get paid to be in a room for a week or two weeks, mock around, not have to do a performance? Yeah. Great. It does. It's like, where's this been my whole life? Turn <laughs> me up. I, it got to the stage where I thought, if I could do R&Ds, you know, for, for the next year or two, that would, that would delight me to not have that pressure of getting up to first night or opening nights and, and then not have that whole thing of, of sustaining it throughout a run. You just go in there, throw your best stuff at it, and then you're on to the next one. So a, a lot of actors make um, a good career out of R&Ds because they're either multi-skilled, uh, you know, multi-instrumentalists or dancers movement, uh, so, but they don't necessarily have the success with casting uh, that uh, other actors will have, but they carve themselves out a great uh, career on that early stage where you're literally putting the ingredients of something together. And mm -hmm. it really relies on having an imagination that you're able to just run wild and to say yes again, very quickly say yes, and very quickly produce something that is as close to what the director is asking for. So it's really thinking on your feet. There's no backstory to this. Uh, you know, there's no in-depth stuff. Uh, R&Ds, it's like, here's the story, let's dive in. You've got a limited amount of time to make the maximum impact. So Sal likes to do that first of all, do an R&D so that then when she casts it and sometimes she uses the actors that have been in the R&D yeah. and sometimes she won't. She goes to her R&D actors who she knows are going to lift this thing off the page. So when we finally cast it and get into the room, we'll often sort of recap for perhaps actors that weren't involved in the R&D, recap what, we, what we've done. And then all around the room, we'll paste up a kind of timeline on the walls, mm. big sheets of paper. And we just write the story together. What happens at first, then what happens, then what happens. Mm. And we get to see the, the story around us. And we'll go and stand at that bit and talk about that bit. And then she says, I want to see this element of it. Mm. Can you do that? And then we just go and do it. Yeah. So it's, it's often she's just plucking things out and she often talks about yeah. uh, wanting to get a, a flavour 
I want the flavor of this. I don't know what it is. And that's something that she will often say. Yeah. I don't know what I want. I need you to show me lots of things. And then she'll, <laughs> she'll say at the end of it, I like that, but I don't want that. That's not what I want. Yeah. I want something like this. And so you sort of keep working. Yeah. And that's her process. I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. Uh, if I was to say that Sally, a lot of the time, I would say maybe 70% of the time, she's saying, I don't know. No. <laughs> I have no idea. I want to get from here to here. Yeah. How do we do that? Yeah. Even to the extent that on the first, first show that I did with her, a sort of retelling of Sleeping Beauty, we didn't have an ending. We hadn't wrapped up the ending because the, the, the story of Sleeping Beauty that we know and love finishes with the wedding. Way, and they both got together. Yeah. That's only the end of the sort of first half of the story in its old tale form. Really? Yeah. So when, when the two of them, you know, sleeping and all that, and the prince, although in this, this time it was a, a prince who was asleep and not a princess. And it was a kind of street kid, uh, wise-cracking girl uh, adventurer who found the sleeping prince. <laughs> and they get together. They didn't, we didn't do the marriage, but they get together. And then the journey starts and, and the, the bad fairy, the wicked fairy who put the original curse on the prince, yeah. uh, follows them and dogs them and captures them and turns uh, the prince into a pig. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of shenanigans. So it's a long old tale. That was, uh, they cut this out of the version I saw, that's for sure. Uh, indeed, because it's so hard to tell. It's just relentless. Yeah. And we literally did get to the end of the show, but we didn't have the ending. And we couldn't figure out the ending. We'd set the premise up, but we couldn't figure out how to do it. So. The first uh, performance, the first uh, preview, she said, well, look, uh, get to that bit, then do this, this and this, uh, and just tie it up in the best way you can. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> out, you know, out we went and uh, got to that bit. And we sort of did and went into the finishing number. And she said, OK, that was awful. That was one of the most awful nights <laughs> of theatre, that, that moment. Of, of oh my god and seeing it in the actors faces we don't know how to end this show <laughs> and each night it slightly changed i'd like to see this version tonight where mm. she does this or i'd like to see this version tonight where the prince does that i'd like to see and so throughout the previews and it wasn't until press night that we actually nailed the, the end yeah and then we sort of kept it uh, as it was so she, she's brave, Sally. She's really brave. And she goes out on a limb. And that brings the actors right to the front of their focus. Because we know it's not, uh, it's not her responsibility, it's ours. And, and we have to craft this story. It's not written for us. We have to craft it and we're not writers. Yeah. We're speakers and actors, we perform actions. But that sort of collective thing is, is amazing for the energy it brings into a room. And again, starts the imagination off. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I count my lucky stars. I'll hopefully get to work with Sally one day and I'd love to 
have her on this show and also just work with her in general she sounds like incredible i mean the amount of yeah just that that word there bravery you know she's she sounds like she's got a a mind of steel in the way that she works but you're the fact you're going into a first preview with no end actually blocked or rehearsed and you're literally making up on the spot in front you know it is an audience but it's not like you know it's a preview audience and they're going to see things which are not 100 percent yet but but but, but they but that's what they expect you know thinking oh see how this changes but the fact you went you went in front of an audience and just went okay just make it up just 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 whatever you feel just do it and it's like i think we i think we've got a couple of options we've been talking well it could go that way it could go this way could go this way and she said well just get through that bit as best you can get to the finishing number we'll sort it out tomorrow but what i mean that's perhaps i mean yes she's incredibly brave and incredibly powerful she's got nerves of steel yeah and she can often be very quiet in a room yeah not really saying much and just letting it sink in. She's a listener, she's a watcher, and then she start to stitch these things together. Mm. And often she's sort of tearing her hair out at it. But when it finally gets there, and it can, it can often, and again, I'm not telling tales out of school, it can often be chaotic <laughs> uh, to get there and pressured uh, for the actor. She's created some of the most beautiful, stunning, uh, magical pieces of theatre that, that I've, I've either been involved with or, I, or I've seen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she's, she's a real tour de force. I know that at the moment she's um, teaching at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. Oh, wow. And the last conversation I had with her, that was sort of during lockdown, because obviously no theatre. Mm. Uh, she said, I'm, I'm sort of rather enjoying it. Rather enjoying not having the pressure of producers and media people and, uh, you know, all that thing to put on a, a show. Yeah. The director is at the very centre of it. And she said, I'm, it's like a breath of fresh air. We're just working together in a room, just doing, uh, which is what she loves to do the best. Find out the best way to tell this story. Yeah, I hope you get a chance to work with her. I hope I get a chance to work with her again. I hope she's not finished her directing day. I'm sure she hasn't. I'm sure she hasn't. <laughs> I'm sure not. But yeah, so I think that is a great segue now into talk about uh, a monster calls. And I think you know because I've just got some quotes here from from Sally herself actually about her process. Um, she talks about lifting the dialogue out of the novel, use the text. What? what, what so to use that text is definitely actually do you know what I'll, I'll bring those in in just a second actually because they're, they're actually quite significant to monster calls um so if any of you watching or listening got the chance to see monster calls i'm sure that we will all agree it was simply one of the most spellbinding shows i've ever seen and i just it that that show had everything it had it had humor it had heart it had truth that's a big word truth there it had humanity it had universality it just had every facet of the human experience that we need to know to have a great life that was in that show and i just i booked it i remember just i remember booking it and going along to see it and thinking oh well, what's this all about because i love the old vic and i thought let's let's see what happens tonight out of the theater let's see what happens and i left like i'd just been punched in the face by god <laughs> honestly i'm walking out thinking 
I remember texting my family after I said, I got, I turned my phone back on after, you know, you turn your phone off in the theater and then you get outside and you got a text from my parents saying, saying, Oh, how's the show? Are you out yet? And I genuinely, this is absolutely true. The first, the text I wrote back was, well, that play was fucking magic. <laughs> and honestly, it was just amazing. And, you know, for you to be, to be part of that, you know, we were talking just before we came on came on today you know surely the, was it quite early on in the middle or when you're actually doing the show when you're thinking to yourself do you know what we've created something pretty pretty special here right was that did that was that quite early on or did you sort of discover it as the run progressed yeah that's a it's a, it's a great question oliver um i think as again we've done a couple of r and d's I think there were two R&Ds and they were probably a year separated and I was in both of them mm. and we were looking at different things for the R each R&D. So when we finally came into the room, a lot of those actors had been in either one or both of those R&Ds. So yeah. we had a sort of collective understanding of what we were walking into. It's, it, it, it's a fantastic novel. Patrick Ness is a superb writer. And, uh, you know, he's, he's called a, a, you know, a young people's or teen writer. He's not just that, uh, but clearly he has a voice uh, yeah. that speaks very clearly to, to younger people. But I find his stuff uh, fascinating. And this, this book is so dense um, and yet so brilliantly light in the same way, in the same sentence, it can go from such darkness to such humor. Yeah. And we were thinking, how, how are we going to tell this story? That was the, that was the thing yeah. that we kept saying, how are we going to do <laughs> But to answer your question, when did we get the idea? I think as we went along, we sort of got this collective feeling, wow, this is, this is something, but we don't know. Mm. And then the producers and, and old Vic came in at the end of a, a two or three week uh, period when we'd started to get it on its feet and we showed them just a snippet of it. And the reaction in the room was absolute silence when we'd finished. Yeah. You know, usually at the end of sort of R&Ds or, or the end of a little presentation, they'll be, you know, and then go for coffee and have some croissants and chat about it. Hello. It was absolute silence. Yeah. And nobody moved. And we just thought, well, gosh, what's what's going on? And we, yeah. we, we'd sort of gone off the stage in the rehearsal room and then we sort of all came back on and producers and people were wiping their eyes and blowing their noses uh, and uh, you know they were turning and hugging each other and it was wow. like oh uh, but we still didn't really know until <laughs> until we'd gone through the first preview and then it it just hit us like a wave it was tsunami it was palpable the the grief in the room, the tension, uh, the the love, the passion, the uh, it was just mind blowing. It was yeah. mind blowing, I think, for people watching it, yeah. and it was certainly mind blowing for us feeling it. You know, if you're in a comedy, if it's doing well, you're getting laughs. Uh, 
but other than that, you know, you can feel whether a show's going down well in the room, but you're still never quite sure. But this, this was overwhelming. And, and as it, you know, time ticked away, let's say, and we got towards the end, I won't sort of reveal the end, but the sobbing in the room yeah. was, was so loud and it was coming from, from all over the place. Yeah. And then we sort of came off the stage and, and again, oh, as, as the show finished and the lights went down, there was utter silence again. Yeah. Just, yeah. It was silent. I don't know whether that was uh, the case when you came to see it, but on, on many, many occasions. All it was a times. long... <laughs> oh, you saw it three times. All three times. <laughs> All three times. Yeah, seriously, just... Yeah. Yeah. It just hung in the air. I'm sort of getting goosebumps oh, uh, thinking about it and remember it because it's such a strange thing. Usually bursts into applause or polite applause if the show's been terrible, but silence. And then eventually a kind of outlet, somebody would sigh or you'd hear a big old clap go yeah. and then it would come. Yeah. And it, again, that came in a wave. And as we came back on to sort of, you know, take the bow, you could feel it. It was, it was hitting us. I mean, you, you described that being punched in the face uh, by God. It, it was literally like a, 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 a field of energy that was sort of coming at us. It was yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I mean, night after night. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, you know, I would have seen it more than three times, but uh, my bank balance was against me. <laughs> Yeah, but I remember, I remember um, in preparation for today, and I, I spoke to you on the phone, I remember just talking about what we wanted to, want to do today. And I want to get this story in the show out, out there while I can. So um, this, is a story about, this is a story about my mum I told you about and her dad. Yeah, and so because um, I think it's absolutely best to sort of talk about the story. So our Monster Calls is all about a, a boy, 13-year-old boy called Connor O'Malley, who is, who is essentially helping his mum through the last few stages of her life and she, her, his mum is terminally ill with cancer and he's helping her through the, sort of the last few stages and over the course of the play he's visited by a monster and the monster tells him three stories all of which are about truth and integrity and just about what what gives a human what, what an example of the kind of behavior you should expect from a decent human being is that you tell the truth and you're honest about things and good things will happen. And then the fourth story, which, which will be Connor's story, which will be his truth, this, the truth that he keeps buried, locked away inside him, that he is so scared to look at, but he has to do it because that is what's going to help him through. And that's all I'll say on that. Um, but And so when I, when I first saw it, the first two times I saw it, um, so my mum's um, dad was sadly, who's sadly no longer with us, died of, of cancer or was suffering from cancer at the time, I should say. And uh, we basically got the news and it wasn't good. And, and I went to my mum and I said to her, look, this, this play, you simply have to see it. It does deal with that subject. So if you don't want to see it, I perfectly, un I, I get it. But that is, the, that is at the heart of the play. And she said, no, don't worry, I'll be fine. I'm gonna, I'll be fine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go see it. And just like you said there, at the end, she was silent. She had the tears 
streaming down her face and she got and she got up and, and applauded like everyone else in the room and she like a, and she still talks about it even to this day about how yeah it did strike a nerve within, within her of course because considering what she was going through at the time but the fact that she she says to me even now I would love to see that again I would love to see that again and so would I you know I would you know you could be you could be talking to me after my 10th visit and I'll still be going I still see something new every single time and I just love this show um so yeah so but this this story is everything about I mean just a bit of background so it was originally the story was originally conceived by um Siobhan Dowd who sadly um had who who sort of mapped the book out she hadn't actually written it or, or wrote it sorry and unfortunately, she passed away from terminal breast cancer before she had a chance to finish the book. Um, and Patrick Ness took up the reins and decided to go to, to finish it. And then Sally read it. And then she was struggling to get the rights. And then Matthew Walker at the Old Vic brought it along. And they did it. And it's just incredible. And just sort of going back to what Sally was talking about, I've got a couple of quotes from here from her. Um, I just want to talk about the you know, because you're dealing with a like a heavy, not only just a heavy subject matter, but a heavy task as well, because you guys had a book and I'm not talking like a little short, short novel. I'm talking about a full on 400 page book and you've got to sort of get that into a two, uh, two hour show. And and she she uses a quote. So saying that she if you use the text, that's deathly dull, as she as she says so herself. Uh, so how, how did you start? I mean, what was the start of that process like when you've got this mammoth of a book and you're going, how can we get all this text into movement and a two hour show? I mean, what was that process like? It, it, it's a challenge. Um, and But Sally has a, a working relationship with a dramaturg. She has a writer yeah. in the room with her. And yeah. that writer is um, more often than not Adam Peck. Yeah, he's, Adam Peck is yeah. a fantastic uh, wordsmith, uh, and and beautiful. He sort of gives himself completely to the text, and he talks about it as breaking it down into a into storyboard almost, so that you take that rather daunting four hundred page thing and try and break it down into sections. What happens here? then what happens, then what happens. And eventually, and this, this process takes a long time for him and Sal, they work together so that when we come to rehearsal, they've got a sort of template, a blueprint, if you like, mapped out uh, without sort of dialogue. It just literally says this happens, then this, then this, there might be some excerpts from the book but it's a, it's a storyboard. Mm. So these things, these two things go side by side. The storyboard, if you like, which is the thing we write around the room, mm -hmm. and the book. And often what Sal will do is say, okay, today we're gonna look at this section. Uh, for instance, the, the bullying section in the canteen. Let's mm. have a look at that. And we sit around in a circle and we read that particular bit from the novel. And then we'll discuss what jumped out at you. Well, this for me or that, or I've got a question about this. So there's some discussion immediately around that bit. 
and then it's it's about can we take a couple of these elements and can we recreate it and that's where then music might come in or she'll just say heck let's do just do some movement let's map this out as if we had little puppets and moving them around the stage so we don't headlong dive into talking into script work which yeah. is fabulous because it frees the actor yeah of of looking at a book for a start you don't have to have a big script with you walking around yes exactly <laughs> just get rid of that you're completely free or she'll do a game that's around it let's say it's the bullying thing so you've got one person versus three people mm. and we'll just do a dynamic game around that and then she might pause you at one second and say okay you're connor you're this you're that just have that little exchange of you know and she might throw some words in that are lifted from the from the book so if there's any dialogue there they will also have all of that written down uh, as as dialogue yeah so it's a, it, it's quite a process with a number of resources available to her mm. but she she will resist uh nailing a script down it's very broad very loose yeah and it's only when we're confident with what comes next or what those elements in that scene are that adam will be tapping away what we've said or lifted straight from the book or adapted and we switch them around and play and then he will start to flesh out that blueprint and so you see appearing before you uh, a new script yeah and it, it's a fascinating process a bit painstaking sometimes very <laughs> frustrating there's a particular scene where connor smashes up his grandmother's uh, yeah. room her best room yeah with her antique grandfather's clock and furniture and crockery in a, in a glass case and he pulls the whole thing down and wrecks her clock and how do you do that do do we suddenly fill the scene with with all these relevant props yeah. and create an almighty mess or do we try and find a, a a different way to convey what is essentially connor's frustration at his grandmother because he's forced to live with her when his mom is in the hospital mm -hmm. so it's a frustration it's a grief, it's a powerlessness. So there, there are all these emotions that Connor's going through that result in him trashing the room. So actually the trashing of the room can be anything, but it, it's to convey that bit of the story. And mm. so that it's, it's freedom. And oh. then when you start adding music and sound effects and lighting and, and so on, yeah. um, that makes the, the whole picture. Yeah, because uh, ben, Benji's score was just, oh. it was hauntingly. Oh, yeah. It was just, I remember sitting there thinking, I'm, I, I'm not a massive fan of the kind of, you know, sonic kind of drum and bass sort of thing. But obviously it wasn't drum and bass or anything like that, but, but it was sonic textures. But yeah. the second he started that, because you actually saw them play the whole time in their little pocket. Didn't right. Yeah. Uh, you could see him actually provide the music for the piece, which I thought was a lovely touch. Uh, but the the sound that he was creating, like with the with the microphone and the distorted vocals and everything else, I just remember the 
I, that still plays in my head sometimes now. And I'm thinking, wow, this is incredible. I mean, that score fit alongside it was beautiful. Um, I'm just thinking, obviously, there's there's so many moments in that in that play, uh, which which are so resonant to people's lives in, in all in all cases, all walks of life. But was there ever like one moment every night or or two moments? Well, yeah, I'd say I'd say was there one moment sort of that you most look forward to every night because you know it was going to get that reaction or you just love doing that scene scene so much you know which is that or was it just or was it just the whole thing was you know was there ever just one thing that you thought god i can't wait to do that again tomorrow i can't wait to do, to do that bit tonight uh yes yes and no i mean i i found it a a really challenging, uh, first of all, a, a challenging character to approach. Yeah. Let's have it right. It's a yew tree yeah. that's been there for, I don't know, maybe a thousand years. A thousand years, yeah. That comes to life and is a giant towering over the house of this boy. And yeah. in, in the novel, he, he pushes his hand through the boy's window, grabs him and pulls him out and holds him to his face and says, I'm gonna tell you three stories. You know, with that kind of image, how, how can, and so I was saying to Sally, what are we doing? Are we making a big old tree? Am I gonna have long legs? What, and she's like, none of that, Stu. I'm not spending budget on a monster. <laughs> You're the monster, and we're just gonna have to find a way to create yeah. you with yeah. everybody else they gave you stilts didn't they i uh, so there were different we tried to come up with a slightly different element for yeah. each scene so right. yes the the first was kind of rope work and i was hauled up into the into the air and we there you, oh, there you go there you are. <laughs> uh, which i mean that that picture sort of beautifully describes how cell doesn't mind seeing the mechanics of things she doesn't want to hide it. She didn't want to put legs on me that look like tree stumps. So I don't care. I put the stilts on there, plaster as stilts. They're not even sort of circus stilts. <laughs> uh, they're for, you know, um, they're very uh, practical uh, things. Uh, like you said about the musicians, she always wants the musicians present. Yeah. Because if you can see people making this sound, you're going to identify with it so much more. Um, so to answer your question, mm -hmm. there were moments throughout that I wouldn't say I looked forward to, mm. but I had to hunker down and, and make a real commitment to the focus of it. First of all, when I'm on stilts, I want to stay on them. <laughs> Imagine the tree falls over. And on the first night we did it in Bristol, I was just on the stilts. Right. And we we're on a slight rake of a stage, and I've been practicing a lot, and I got quite confident in the rehearsal room. But actually, on the night, as the nerves and the energy, that adrenaline kicked in, I yeah. found I was rather unsteady. Oh. And I was thinking, oh boy, I could uh -oh. go here <laughs> any minute. And I've got a, a, a huge block of text. I'm narrating a story over action and dancing. It was about the sort of industrial revolution, that bit, yeah. Uh, yeah. wasn't it? That story. 
And the next, the very next night, I, or as soon as I came off after that, I was like, I need a big stick for tomorrow night. I need it really big and so I can hang on to it and I can bash it as well in time, but I need a big stick. Yeah. And so there, again, trying to answer your question, there were moments like that, set pieces, mm. uh, the rope stuff. I had to hit the right mark, catching him when he's spinning. And uh, the catching of him, if I didn't get him right, it would just not quite make the image uh, perfect. Yeah. And we wanted to try and create a picture book image so that you've got a very stark image. So if I didn't catch him right, it would be a bit awkward and I have to bob down. And um, so I loved the, the fact that I could, heighten you know take on that sort of heightened status mm. and apply myself and really focus because I knew this set piece was uh, instrumental in moving the story on mm. and there, there were so many moments and I, I think that I mean just the sort of moment at the end towards the end where oh, I, I have caught him and he's spinning you know, into infinity and I catch him and then we sort of come together a little bit and I'm, I'm, I'm protecting this boy. I've, I've, I've got a hold of him. And that's the first time really that Matty and I had sort of close contact, although we did, we did have a little bit earlier on, but I could just feel him breathing and he, he was banging that character every night. He lived that thing. Yeah, And uh, I could just feel the energy off him and to have that energy and uh, a whole idea of that scene was to calm him. And I believe that by the end of that scene, he was calm because I felt that thudding in his chest and I could feel it, uh, it and it, it just sort of calmed down. So it, there weren't a lot of things that I thought that's great fun because I was just thinking, just stay on your feet or stay on the rope or stay mm -hmm. on this. Um, <laughs> you know, but the, there were so many moments that were beautifully marked, I think. And it was an absolute privilege yeah. to, to run through those moments and mark them because I knew they were going to hit home really powerfully. We knew. Yeah. And so we wanted to present them in the best way possible so I don't think anybody talked about I really loved it tonight or I had great fun or I love that bit because we were carrying a fair old bit of weight mm. uh, but what we did do was we felt like we served well tonight and that bit went really well so mm. uh, it sort of answers your question I think no, no yeah that's fantastic yeah it does massively uh yeah because that was a lovely moment because afterwards you had, I think, like you said, there wasn't just one moment. It was the whole thing as, as, as a whole. So to be slightly unfair and just pick one little moment, if I may, uh, was when you were comforting um, uh, Matty or Connor at that point. Mm -hmm. And you have this, this amazing speech about, because your mind will contradict itself oh yeah yeah over and over again and the fantastic one really lovely moment was that line you had i think connor asks you oh, God, oh no it's, it's he asked you something like why are humans why are they so inconsistent in their behavior or something like that and you said because humans are complicated beasts <laughs> and 
I thought that is very, A, that's very true, and B, that's brilliant. Uh, and uh, yeah, that that moment as well, because you, you must have had so much fun. If, if I was in your position and I'm saying that speech every night or every afternoon, I'd be there thinking, wow, this is such a pleasure. This is such a pleasure to not only be part of this project, but to say these words in this play at this time. I mean, that must have been su such an honour to do every night. Absolutely, uh, possibly more so than any other show I've been in, uh, although Wild Bride with Nehi was a pretty special story as well, but the, yeah. this one particularly. And of course, when you're devising, you know, each word costs money. Yeah. You know, you can't, you, you can't stack everything in that you want. So you yeah. have to get to a stage where you say, this has got to go. Yeah. Well, this has got to be, we've got to get from here to here quicker. What do you do? So you start slashing stuff. Take that out. Well, I lose the context of that. Can I bring that back in? Well, yes, but it... And, and so you really get to manipulate and distill and find the words that are going to tell that story yeah. in, in, in the fewest, in, in, you know, in the smallest number of words. And to his credit, um, Patrick Ness is a fantastically um, sparse writer. He, he, even though you say it's a, a 400 page book and it's dense in its description and imagination, yeah. the words he chooses yeah. just uh, drop into place so beautifully. Yeah. And Adam, Adam Peck, the, the dramaturg or writer in the room is also impeccable at editing and slotting and splicing and so we all become uh, fairly fluid with this text but my goodness I read that thing I read that thing I read that thing and um I, I started a habit for myself when I was doing Tristan and Isolt uh, on tour in America mm. and I'd got quite a lot of verse speaking to do yeah and I started a habit of uh, I, as a warm-up, I would walk through every move and every line every night for fear of, of dropping a line. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I did that with Monster Calls. And that's dense. Oh, you know, it's a lot of text. Yeah. But I did it. And so I just run it through my mouth a little bit and tap on it. Because clarity, you talk about integrity and, and simplicity, the, the clarity of those stories is vital. Mm. And so not a word can be wasted. And so I was always looking, have I got the right emphasis? Am I talking about the tree or am I talking about the bark of the tree? What tree am I talking about? What medicine? How black was it? How fiery is it? Uh, so you, you really get time to immerse yourself in those words. And it's important to play and stretch those words and find out the quality of them. Mm. And all that sort of back work then informs it. And once it's running, and this with this show, once that show was running, you're away and you couldn't yeah. stop it. And it was a beautiful thing to be a part of. The elements of music, the lighting, the movement, the rope work, the, the whole thing was, uh, you know, like a ballet in, in many respects. So it was gobsmacking to be a, a part of it and just watch it. 
on those few occasions I was able to to just sit and watch what other actors were doing. It was, yeah. it was fantastic, such an honor to yeah. be among such great skill. Yeah, because that, that, that's always a, a really nice advantage of device theater as well, because you go away and work on your scenes and you're, you show them, but then you, there, there's that lovely moment where you get to sit in the audience or just sit, or just, yeah, to sit in the audience or just watch what other people are doing. And then you start, to, and you're starting to see how things come together. Yeah. And you see the work and, you know, it's a, you know, Sally called it, um, a, it's a group effort, something like that. It's not just a director, it's a collaborative effort. Everyone, whether you're ensemble or Connor, we're all in this together. There's no yeah. us and them, it's us mm. group, yeah. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, you say group effort, I would even say group responsibility. Responsibility. We're, we're holding this thing together. And uh, one, uh, a person that I haven't mentioned yet, which uh, I should do, is the assistant director is uh, on this was Miranda Cromwell. Yeah. Now she's um, been assistant director with Sal a couple of times and has worked with Marianne Elliott uh, a couple of times. They've picked up awards. Um, wow. Miranda Cromwell, uh, just awesome. Yeah. Uh, so young, but so wise, uh, so immersive, so physical with it. Uh, she had a. She brought her own story, uh, like yours. Um, her father was, at the time of rehearsal, uh, going through the yeah. final stages of of having cancer. So uh, as she was as she was in the room with us, telling us this story, her own story, family story, was going on in the background. And some days it was impossible for her, uh, but most days it it drove her on. Mm. Um, and she's a director to watch out for. My goodness, she's doing oh, some incredible oh, things. So yeah, <laughs> uh, um, Miranda Cromwell, and um, also one of the other actors. One of the the again, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. Um, <laughs> Cecilia, who played gra the grandma. Yeah. Uh, her husband was uh, going through this and um, again some days she found it impossible but most days there was a strength a collective strength yeah and because we were piecing the story together she felt uh, like uh, she was there creating it with and so it was her responsibility to run with that story rather than just, oh, well, I'll learn the lines and, and rock up and do my moves. Yeah. So a completely shared thing. And there was a lot of hand-holding and kind of hold tight. You know, we don't know what's going to happen here. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. Yeah, I can imagine you guys at the end of, I've done a couple of things where you just finish a rehearsal and everyone's just in tears and you're just all like, group hugs are essential in the rehearsal room because all of you are just like, Come on, we're in this together now. We're all here now. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, and, and then followed by a huge laugh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Last word. Just throw lighten it. it. Throw it away and, and, and yeah. lighten it. Okay. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're all sad now. Okay. Now, someone please just make a joke. We need to laugh now. We need to shake this yeah. off. And then you go to the bar and get drunk. And it's lovely. Um, wow. I mean, honestly, I, I could talk to you about this production all day, but time is is preventing me from, from doing that. Um, I suppose if there's, I think we've covered so much already, but I'd just like to ask you one more thing just before we, before we finish off. Um, 
there's there's always a there's always like a you know I, I was thinking about the the differences between obviously people say yeah but it's just a play that they created it they wrote it yeah but they're so different you know between a scripted play and when you just walk into the rehearsal room and Sally just goes okay I've no idea what we're going to do but we're going to have to put something together uh and it got me thinking about the, obviously those are the obvious differences but if we were to go a bit deeper and ask you know from someone like yourself who's who's been there who was part of this this process from the very beginning what, what, what could you say what would you say that what can devise theatre do what a play can't well like what a script can't in a way because there's because you have a script you know you do your research you learn your lines you do it jobs are good in whereas with this you know you're at, you are creating it you know we're looking at a blank canvas and going okay we need the paint well first of all we need the brush okay now we need a particular brush then we have a particular shade, shade of paint and all that kind of stuff um but that experience gave me something that a pre-scripted play didn't you know it's that the fact it was built up it was that 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 impulse you know the heart uh, the whole uh, yeah so what, what what do you think that building something from scratch does for the for a theater experience that a play can't if that makes sense yes it does make sense and it's it's a it's a great question and I think, of course, both of them have huge uh, strengths and a, a, a well-written, well-crafted script is also a joy yeah. to, to give yourself to, to try and unlock the rhythms that the author intended, uh, to try and, uh, you know, recreate the voices that he heard. So that, that's a, a particular joy and a particular challenge. But plays will come very prescribed. Yeah. Uh, it will describe the set. It will describe which door the actor walks in. It yeah. will often describe what they're wearing. And so everything is almost laid out for you and you just have to run along with it. With a devised piece, you've got the kernel, you've got the, the heart of the, of the story. Beyond that, there's, there's massive choices of how you're going to tell this. And I think it lends itself to that sort of dynamic theatre, that multi, um, multi-dimensional multimedia theatre, so that all those elements which in a traditional play are perhaps just supportive, i.e. sound and lighting and, and so on, that aren't uh, necessarily intrusive, you can splat them on your canvas really large and make bold statements and uh, that that perhaps with a scripted play you're playing with nuances uh, or you know that the set pieces are very prescribed mm. but with a with a devised play you have got a, a license to let your imagination go as far as as it possibly can as long as there's an overseer, the director, and I mentioned Miranda again as assistant director, crucial in, in having an outside view of it and, and shaping its boundaries, what it, what it gives to the actor is complete freedom. It's daunting. Hmm. I'm not a writer. 
And so I would naturally go to look at the, and thankfully the, the voice of the monster is very clear uh, throughout the whole piece, as are, as are all the characters. Um, but it, it gives each actor, each performer that's in the, that room, the same status, like, like you alluded to, whether you're playing Matty, uh, uh, he's the actor, Connor, <laughs> the central character, the grandma, the monster, uh, so on, the mother, um, the status is the same as everybody else who plays uh, Lily, who plays one of the bullies, because we have a collective responsibility to make that, that thing together. Yeah. And often hearing other people's perspectives, and sometimes we switch it round and we'll get a completely different actor who's speaking a different character, to read my character so I can hear it. Hmm. Or what would they do it? Hey, how about try this? I can have a go at that. And when was the last time you were in a rehearsal room and the actor playing Julius Caesar said, go on, Oliver, uh, you show me, what, what would you do with this scene? <laughs> uh, in a device sense, every nugget that somebody brings, every idea is valid yeah. and, and and we, we often don't get to hear from, from especially young actors, I think. Uh, when you're starting out in your career, unless you've risen very quickly and got those big parts, you're going to be in sort of supporting or minor roles, certainly with the Shakespeare and, and, and that sort of thing. Often you don't really hear uh, the voices of young actors in a rehearsal room. No, you don't no. get their contribution because no. the big the big hitters are, are commanding the room. Yeah. And, you know, you just want to stay quiet because yeah. uh, if you do open your mouth, my goodness, the whole room looks round at you and it better be bloody good what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> so, so that, I, I just find being in a devising situation at once the pressure is on you, but because it's shared, the pressure is off and mm. it's collective. And it doesn't matter who has the idea. And quite often people will have ideas that are not relevant to their part in it. So it's not an ego thing, I'd like to do this. It's, hey, how about that? Or I saw you do something yesterday. And then this will often happen before rehearsals, after, in the lunch break, I saw you do that thing. Were you supposed to do that? Well, what thing? Well, I thought it was great because yeah. you learn so much about it because we're all sitting watching everything. We're all contributing and we are, we are all balanced and, uh, and equal. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, so yeah, I, don't, I relate entirely to, you know, because particularly as a young person, you know, when you're just starting out, you know, you, you want to contribute. But, you know, you're scared of saying something and then you hear like the penny drop or the tumbleweed go across the room and you're just <laughs> you're sitting there thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> yes. why, did, why did I say that? And believe me, that's happened to me before. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that is a performance in itself. Yeah. You know, uh, gearing yourself where you've had that thought, oh, I wonder if, and then how am I going to phrase it? Uh, when's my moment? Uh, am I going to interrupt, right? Here it is, here it comes. <laughs> and you, it's like you've got to perform your uh, idea. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole sort of protocol around it, isn't there? Um, oh, yeah, because I, I remember being at the National and just there was a moment 
where we're part of my job there was to go research um new stuff i'll be working on a play called my country work in progress which is all about the uh the vote the the result of the eu referendum back in 2016. that's all i'll say about that uh but uh, yeah, i can't remember how that vote went did, did, uh, did it, it's probably it's probably best we don't talk <laughs> 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 for another hour but uh but yeah so basically rufus asked me to go away and look for uh news clips you know bbc stuff and I was, I spent an afternoon watching David Cameron and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. It was lovely. It was a lovely time. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, there's an interview that he, that Boris Johnson gave to Andrew Marr, where he said, um, the EU vote is like a jailer opening the, leaving the door open and people can see the sunlit land beyond. They can see their freedom if they vote leave. And I'm just there thinking, oh, <laughs> And uh, but that stuck in my head. I thought, oh, okay, that's that's quite an interesting thing there. And then we're in the rehearsal room, and Rufus is going, okay, look, okay, we've got a quote here, we've got a quote here. We just need one more, and I think we're good. But I can't think of anything. Is anyone? Th and everyone's going, no, I have no idea. I have no idea at all. And I'm just there, like a little <laughs> little scared twenty one year old, just going, I I've got something to contribute. I've got something to contribute, but. I don't, I don't know what to do. And then, uh, you know, but one of the actors just nudged me and just went, just, just tell him. Just tell, you've got something, just tell him. And then I was like, uh, uh, Rufus, <laughs> you know, and it, it took a while to get, to get it out. But I was like, uh, Rufus, sorry, just before we move on, um, Boris said this thing where he went, uh, the jailers leave the door open. People can see the sunlit land beyond. And he went, who said that? I said, I said Boris. He went, all right, that's going in. And so he just went down on his computer and he went, all right, We've got Ollie's thing, we've got this, we've got that, and it made it into the final cut as well. And I was just like, fantastic. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, great. I mean, you, you could pr probably tell I haven't, I mean, I've, uh, I've only worked with Sally for, I've worked with Sally for the last sort of three, four years, and then knee high for three or four years. Yeah. And I haven't worked in any, I haven't worked with any other director in any other theater. Yeah, in, yeah. That, in almost a 10 year period, eight to 10 year period. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing rehearsal rooms are changing and the uh, you know, directors are, are much more open. And it, by the sounds of it, I mean, Rufus oh. Norris, he's, he's got huge oh. and success. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was such a pleasure just to get to know him and just chat and just, you know, just he like it was, you know, he's just just a normal guy, but with a lot of talent, with a hell of a lot of talent over that. Aspect. And when you know, you mentioned Marion Elliott again. I've I've oh, yeah. not I had the pleasure of working with her, but I've heard you know just what a fantastic yeah. atmosphere she creates in that room, an enabling atmosphere. Yeah, they want you to produce your best. Yeah, uh, it's it's in their interest. Uh, <laughs> it's in their interest. Yeah, that's good. I mean, and just one one final question uh, I have for you to do is this is quite a simple one, really. Would you recommend doing a devised, but any actors listening, young, old, whatever age you are, and you've got the opportunity to do a devised production with a director like a, like Sally or with Miranda or with anyone, just on a on a on a on a stage, a devised project, would you, what would you say? Would you say do it? Absolutely, absolutely, without, without question. And it's quite uh, unnerving. And you say more mature actors, uh, the actor that played uh, grandma, you know, she, she was into yeah. her seventies. Yeah. And she confessed, I'm very uncomfortable with this. I yeah. don't know what I'm doing. I don't, 
work without a script. And, and it, was, it was uncomfortable. And, and so we all had to sort of help her through it. And in the end, she found a freedom that, that mm. uh, she, she hadn't known for 50 years of her, of her career. So she wow. came from this uh, very late. Uh, again, I would come back to R&Ds yeah. and say if, if, if you can badger your agent or, or, or write to the theatres about R&Ds and try and get in on one of those, they're a lovely glimpse uh, and a kind of easy, small, manageable thing if you've not done devising before. But yeah, I would say absolutely. It yeah. doesn't always produce the quality. Yeah. Uh, of uh, you know the the great writers and and often uh, critics will pick up on that because it's a safe thing for them it's not shakespeare it's not brecht it's uh, so on and sometimes the devised dialogue unless it's lifted directly from the novel isn't as exciting and uh, it, it just depends it's a it's a gamble it's a risk but my goodness, as an actor, what a treat. Mm. What a treat to be set free in a room with other people to create something out of nothing. And mm. I think that's the important thing with devising. Yeah. You start in an empty room. There might be a roll of paper there that you can you know, make puppets out of even or, or write stuff on the walls. But in terms of props and costume and set and all that, it, there's nothing there. There's nothing there and there are no set rules. It's just, you've got this story in front of you. How do you step forward into the next bit of it? And yeah. like I said to you at the beginning, that is simply by saying, yes, <laughs> I, will, I will do that. I will step forward. So yeah, I've had, in the last eight or 10 years, I've, I've had some of the most enjoyable times of my life yeah. And if I never did another show again, and I hope to work with um, you know, certainly Sally again, and I'd love a chance to work with Miranda, uh, but she's going so uh, sky high, she won't even be looking at uh, the likes of me. Um, I, say that. I, would, I, would do it in a, I would do it in a heartbeat, but if I never worked again, and I've got a bread and butter job as a carpenter and general builder, I do... Um, public speaking coaching as well, which is, is coming back. Now we're able to meet in rooms. If I never got the chance to perform on stage again, I think I would be satisfied with what I have done in those uh, 10 years. And certainly to cap it off the last piece that I did, uh, Monster Calls. I, I could not get any uh, more fulfilled yeah. uh, as, a, as an actor uh, in a room with people. <sighs> Yeah, I feel exactly the same, honestly. Uh, Stu, this has been a lot of fun. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience of not only a monster calls, but of your career and working with R and RNGs and stuff like that. That is, it's been such a pleasure. And right. I think that is a lovely place to, fin to, to finish on actually. It's just say yes, say yes. Say yes, and uh, I mean, just finally, uh, what, what, I, what I love uh, about uh, the, the sort of knee-high approach and Sal's approach and, and what seems to be coming out of uh, drama schools at the moment, and I spend a lot of time in Bristol, Bristol Old Vic, mm. they have the young, uh, uh, the young company, and then they have a slightly more mature um, company that are together for a year. Yeah. They do a lot of devising and they, they go hard at it 
And what's what comes out of that is a, a the growth in people, uh, the confidence, and that sort of collective uh, binding together of a, a sort of common thing. And and I wish when I was sort of 16, 17, 18, I'd, I'd sort of known half of this and into my 20s even. Mm. Uh, and I would have gone and set up my own company and just performed somewhere, at a festival or at the village hall or, or something just to get out and try this stuff. Because who knows where that, once the magic begins, it, it can roll on and, and, and just feed you, feed you for the rest of your life mm. uh, in, in, in one sense, even though we juggle between our bread and butter jobs, our ideal jobs, our yeah. ideal acting roles, you know. That's just there to make money. That's not, that's not our life. <laughs> it's, a, it's a juggle, but if you can get that element in it that you've got some control over the, of some of the work yeah. that you produce, I, I think you're on the way to... Uh, fulfillment you know as a person and and as an actor yeah and there we go i think that is absolutely true say yes and follow your follow your heart i think you just say yes that is the i think i think that's going to be in the thumbnail for this i mean of course you can say no eventually if it's inappropriate or 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 whatever there's 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 a caveat you know and we've had us a few fun times in a room in knee high when Emma has asked us to do one of things, one or two things, and we've been like, no. okay, okay, we'll try that. And, and then you do it, and then you're like, yeah. that was not a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, well, thank you so much, uh, Oliver, first of all, to, for getting in touch. Oh. Uh, the great um, feedback um, about Monster Calls and, and for doing this. I absolutely take my hat off to you. Uh, oh. You seem very relaxed and 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 confident in your chair, and that you're passionate about your your work and stuff. So it's, it's been a great, it's been a great, um, mm, great thank thing you. to do. Thank you, Stu. Thank you for just being so open and just describing that experience. And just, I've never been more fascinated with a one particular show. I mean, I've I've bored you to death about the love I have for that for that show and everything, but. Yeah, that was really something special. And it's just been so great to hear about the mechanics behind it as well. And also it's it's helped me to fall back in love a bit with devising in a way. And you know that whilst you do have tough days, you know that you you will get through them. And then when you look at that final project and you think to yourself, we built this from absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing at all. And here we are. And yeah, and I think that is a lovely place to end. So thank you very much, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining me for the Uncensored Critic. I'll be back again soon. Uh, and once again, Stuart, uh, sorry, Stu, thank you so much for, for today. It's been such a pleasure. If you just hang, if you just hang on, I'll end the call now, then I'll say goodbye to your face-to-face love afterwards. So yeah, that'd be great. So once again, thank you guys. Thank you, Stu. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie.